0: Thomas Cranmer was the architect behind the Protestant Reformation that came to England. So what we know as the Anglican Reformation, the Anglican Church. And in 1549, he published something called the Book of Common Prayer. And it was meant to be a guide to churches in England and their ministers to provide some prayers and to provide some orders of service or liturgies for certain circumstances in the life of the church. It's a wonderful collection of prayers made of something like 85% direct quotes from the Bible. But even if you've never heard of this book of common prayer, you're probably still familiar with something that says, listen carefully to this, Dearly beloved, we have come together in the presence of God to witness and bless the joining together of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. The bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation, and our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It signifies to us the mystery of the union between Christ and his church. The Holy Scripture commends it to be honored among all people. The union of husband and wife in heart, body, and mind is intended by God for their mutual joy, for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity, and, when it is God's will, for the procreation of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord. Therefore, marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, deliberately, and in accordance with the purposes for which it was instituted, by God. That's a beautiful brief summation of scripture's teaching on the institution of marriage, a covenant which was established by God, a picture of the mystery of Christ's love for his church, not to be entered into lightly, but reverently and in, in accordance with the purposes for which it was instituted by God. Holy matrimony So the question is, is that your view of marriage? There are competing visions of marriage that seem very similar, but are actually quite different. So is yours a view that is a high view, a high covenantal view of marriage with a binding promise of contributing future love and relational faithfulness to the spouse or a lower contractual view? primarily focused on having your needs met transactionally with little to no relational obligation. This morning's passage deals with the sensitive topic of divorce. And there's probably not anyone in here whose family has not been impacted by divorce in some way or another, each with different circumstances. I want to ask you in humility to interpret my words with charity this morning. It would be hopeless for me to try to speak specifically in a way that would speak and apply equally well to every life that is represented here. I want you to know that my intention is to treat the subject with pastoral care and nuance, and that pastoral care prevents me from showing partiality in my instruction as the prophet made clear in the verse just before this section in Malachi 2.9. It would be tempting to soften the prophet's language here, or maybe to try to explain it away. But my aim is to present it with the boldness and clarity that God's words deserves so that we might be turned from iniquity rather than stumbling into sin. The structure of the book of Malachi is built around questions and answers, It's really, essentially, six dialogues or disputes between God and his people mediated by this prophet Malachi. And each of these interactions has three elements to it. The prophet gives a statement from God. The prophet then anticipates how Israel is going to object to that statement. And then he provides the response to their objection. A statement, an objection, and then a response. And so here is today's dispute from this section. The statement, God no longer accepts your worship with favor, verse 13. The objection, why? The first half of verse 14, and then the response. Because you have treacherously broken the covenant of marriage. The second half of verse 14 and following. I submit that the big idea of this passage for us this morning is this. Unfaithfulness to the covenant of marriage is treachery toward God. Unfaithfulness to the covenant of marriage is treachery toward God. We'll look at this passage in two sections. God desires holy matrimony, first from verses 10 through 12. Second, violating the covenant of marriage is violent treachery from verses 13 through 16. God takes the covenant of marriage seriously. This passage makes that clear. And because of the hardness of the human heart, we often do not take it as seriously as we ought. The overarching application from this text is for all of us to guard ourselves and not to be treacherous to one another. But even if you're not married, this does still apply to you for potential future marriages or even in ways that you might need to give counsel to family or friends who are married. Let's pray as we begin. Father, would you come to you uh, dependent upon your spirit in humility, knowing that your word is better than our thoughts. And so we ask that you would help us to see your word as life-giving this morning. May we see your constraints as not something that is binding us, but allowing us to be the humans that you have called us to be. Uh, I ask for your Holy Spirit to comfort and guide individual hearts here this morning whose lives are so different from one another. May this land upon them in a way that is appropriate, and we ask that you would help us in this. We'll pray it in Jesus' name, amen. First, God desires holy matrimony, verses 10 through 12. There's one passage, hopefully you notice this as Roger was reading through this, there is one word in this passage that occurs more than, than others, and occurs five times between verses 10 and 16, and it's the word faithless. Uh, the ESV translates it as faithless. You can see, if you've got your Bible in front of you, that the word sort of marks off this section. It's at the beginning, it's at the end. Why are we faithless, verse 10? And then don't be faithless, verse 16. It's a fairly rare word in the Old Testament. It doesn't occur a whole lot, but it's very compact right here. It's very high concentrated of this concept of faithfulness or faithlessness. It's translated elsewhere in the ESV, the same Hebrew word, as treachery. And treachery seems like a stronger word. It is a betrayal of trust. It is breaking faith. It describes someone whose words and actions are unreliable. Someone who acts treacherously is rightly called a traitor. And a traitor is dangerous because you can't trust them even under oath, a traitor's word has no value. There is no weight to it. And so Proverbs 25 uses the same root word in verse 19, and it gives us a good illustration of what we're thinking about here. It says, "Trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips." It's helpful analogies. So it's a source of misery or an unstable foundation because he's not trustworthy, he is faithless. So the word faithless is accurate. If someone's faithless or unfaithful, they're being deceitful or unreliable. But treachery might be a more helpful way for us to grasp the concept that is here. So in my copy, every time faithless appears, I've written down treacherous next to it just to help fill out the meaning. And I want that concept to be clear in our minds because it is the backbone Of this entire passage. Because this whole thing revolves around the concept of covenant faithfulness. Now, this is going to require some brain power. I'm going to ask you to give me your attention for eight solid minutes. Because if you don't, nothing else I say is going to make sense. So, pencils down, hold on tight. This is a paraphrase from the theologian Stephen Wellham, who is helping us understand what a covenant is. This is how he defines it. A covenant is an agreement which defines a relationship between parties marked by faithfulness and love. So it is an elected or chosen relationship of obligation. You have freely desired to enter into this covenant relationship. And so Malachi began his message with a direct word from God, chapter 1, verse 2. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And when Israel asked how that could be true, he pointed to the doctrine of election. He reminded them that he set his love uniquely upon the nation of Israel in a way that is distinct from the way that he withheld it from a different nation called Edom. He said that they would understand his intentions by observing his actions, because Edom was going to receive just wrath, while Israel was going to continue to receive mercy. Not because they deserved it, but because God is faithful to the covenant that he entered into with the nation of Israel. And he did that because of the covenant promise that he made to Israel's father, Abraham. So the Book of Common Prayer, I mentioned earlier, sets out a a liturgy, or a ritual ceremony that solemnizes the oath between two parties who are entering into the marriage. And we have things that we do in more contemporary times to sort of visualize what's happening in a wedding ceremony. So one of those things is a unity candle. So you've got the, the bride and the groom, you each have candles, and they go up and they light one candle together, two flames now joining into one flame. You can't separate those flames back into their original source, that's not how it works. This is a visual representation of it. For my wife and I, we had two different jars with different colors of sand and we went up and poured those two colors of sand into one jar and as you're pouring it in there the sand flows in a different ways and the colors mix together it makes a beautiful design. But it's an illustration that the two now have become one flesh. You can't take that one jar and pour it back out distinctly into those two original jars. So it's a visual representation. It's a ritual that we're walking through that is teaching and illustrating something. Well, way back in Abraham's day, covenant relationships were marked by rituals too. They were a little different. They had an illustration that would visualize the curse that would fall on them if they broke their word. So they would cut up animals, cut them in half, and sort of arrange them on the ground. And then the two people would walk together through those cut-up pieces of animal. And this is what it was illustrating. If one of us, two people, breaks this covenant, then may what happened to those animals happen to that person. And so both parties were on the hook. They were subject to the penalty if they were going to break that promise that they're entering into with that other person this is genesis chapter 15 if you want to see this playing out in real time okay so we're filling out this concept of covenant there were blessings of faithfulness and relationship that are promised here but there's also a threat of a curse for the one who breaks the covenant okay Now, fast forward in time to Israel at Mount Sinai. That's where God entered into a covenant with Abraham's family, the nation of Israel. He created them with his word as a nation and as a people. Exodus 19, God tells Moses, quote, well, more or less, quote, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. You saw how I brought you out of slavery to myself. Now, if you obey my voice, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. And so Moses tells the people what God said, and they vowed. Israel gets together and they vow, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. I do. I enter in. So Israel's men were were circumcised as a sign, an outward sign, that they were part of that covenant community. And the ritual of circumcision carries its own implicit curse within it of what would happen if you broke the covenant of being cut off from the people. Now, the whole book of Deuteronomy is written in the form of a covenant. It's just before they're entering into the promised land, and so Israel is renewing their vows. Israel would be God's people, and he would be their God. God would be faithful to them, and they would be faithful to him. Yahweh, do you take Israel to be your people? I do. Israel, do you take Yahweh to be your God? We do. And just like a wedding, there were witnesses to this covenant that God is entering into with Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 through 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and the length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob, to give them. The witnesses of a covenant are supposed to hold each party of that covenant accountable to the oath that they made that's why people say as God is my witness when they're trying to convince you that they're not lying to you So that God is witness to me well God here invokes all of creation as his witnesses to the covenant that he is entering into with Israel God knew of course that over time they would be prone to wander they would be prone to forget who he is. They would be prone to forget what he has done for them and the importance of his relationship to them. And as a result, they would start to worship the false gods of those other nations. In other words, they would commit spiritual adultery. They would be faithless and treacherous to the covenant that they entered into with God. Now, God, of course, knew that that would be a temptation. And so he said in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, You shall not intermarry with them, that is, the nations that surround you, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. You are my treasured possession, essentially. I've rescued you. I have provided for you. I have set my love uniquely upon you. Don't run out on me, But one of Israel's kings named Solomon, very unwisely, decided to go ahead and marry the daughters of foreign gods. And it was largely downhill in the history of Israel from that point. Eventually Israel would be removed because of their idolatry from their land, and yet God, because he is faithful to the covenant, even when Israel is not faithful to the covenant, he brought them back to their land. And at the time Malachi is writing, they've been back in the land now for about 100 years. And over those 100 years, they've started to grow cold toward God. They've become hypocritical. They've become skeptical. And they were falling right back into the same old paths of disobedience. Okay. With all of that in mind, read verse 10, 11, and 12 with me. Have we not all one Father... Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless or treacherous to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Okay, so Israel is devoted to to the one true and living God who is their father. He is the one who created them with his word. And in order for God's covenant with Israel to remain unbroken, they were going to need to keep from marrying into pagan families. God desired pay, uh, godly offspring, which is what we find later on in this same section. God desires godly offspring who would also be devoted to him. God desired a holy people. And if they were going to start building homes or families that were uh, divided in their devotion, that was increasingly unlikely going to happen over Over the years over the generations and so god now he's desiring a holy people who are devoted who are dedicated to him alone that's what holy means the opposite of holy is profane which means common there's nothing distinctive about it it's not set apart for a use that is what profane means so israel his people are entering into unholy matrimony with women who are devoted to another god And in so doing, they are profaning the covenant and the holiness of the Lord, which he loves. So that is the abomination, the detestable act that is mentioned in verse 11. They were marrying women who were committed worshipers of a different deity. And it's a serious violation of the covenant that they agreed upon and entered into with God, which is why the prophet says anyone who would do that should be cut off from the tents from the camp removed from the covenant community of israel because that is the curse of treachery against the covenant all right so we need to think very carefully about what this means for us what does this mean for christians on this side of the cross in light of the gospel this passage is not about ethnic superiority or racial exclusivity we only need to look at the book of ruth and realize that she was a Moabitess who married into Israel to know that that is not the case. We can talk more about that next month. But this passage is not arguing for racial exclusivity or superiority. The issue at hand here is the fidelity of God's covenant people to God himself. So now, on this side of the cross, God's people are no longer identified as a particular nation as it was in the old covenant. Christ, we know from Ephesians, has broken down the wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. So I, I want to make sure that you're clear here. Don't let anyone convince you that this is a proof text to support some sort of ethnic purity or kinism, as it is sometimes called, that is clearly anti-gospel. But it's probably the principal concept that Paul had in mind when he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that Christians should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The illustration there is that you wouldn't want to have a plow that is pulled by a donkey on one side and an ox on the other because they wouldn't be pulling at the same rate, the same direction, and they'd be working against each other to some degree, and it would actually just cause problems. There would be an imbalance in their effort. So for a Christian to marry someone who does not worship the same God would be to introduce two competing worldviews into the one home. Because we know that devotion to Christ is meant to shape everything about how we live. And if you're bound to someone who is apathetic or even despises the things of God, you'll face a very serious temptation to abandon God altogether. I'm sure some of you have those experiences and extended family members and that sort of thing too. As a general principle, dating someone with the potential of marriage as an evangelistic mission is unwise. So God desired holy matrimony in Israel because he desired a holy people. God was different from the false gods of those other nations. Therefore, Israel was supposed to be different from those other nations too. And so God's covenant people should marry people who are also devoted to God. To do otherwise would be to break the covenant that they made with God. And it's directly after that that the prophet moves into a different way of breaking covenant, those who are abandoning their current rightful marriages. Second, violating the covenant of marriage is violent treachery. We pick it up in verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless or treacherous, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless or treacherous to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless, treacherous. So this is the section where we're getting into the dispute now. God no longer accepts their worship with favor. Why? Because they have treacherously broken the covenant of marriage. It's possible that these men of Israel were divorcing their wives in order to marry women who were devoted to other gods, foreign gods. So it's possible that they've been married now, but there are these other women who are devoted to these other gods who are coming in. Maybe they're younger or more powerful, and they're thinking, Oh, I can just put away my old wife and I can pick up a new one. So not only then would they be breaking covenant with God, they're breaking covenant with their wives. These men are covering the Lord's altar with tears, weeping, groaning, and for the longest time when I read this, and this, stood, this could still be right, When I read this, I assumed that the men themselves were covering the altar with their own tears and weeping and groaning. Like they were sad because God wasn't accepting their worship with favor. But the more I looked at it, there's no indication that they're actually remorseful or repentant. And really throughout the book of Malachi, that's never the impression that you get. And it doesn't appear that they would have even known that God was not accepting their worship with favor because Malachi had to come and tell them that. They didn't know why. It's more likely, in my reading, that the tears and weeping and groaning come from the wives that they had abandoned. Verse 13 could be rightly translated You cover the Lord's altar with tears so that, or with the result, he no longer accepts your offering. Because of their infidelity, treachery, God was no longer pleased with their acts of worship and devotion. And so the question is, whose tears are covering that altar? It seems to me that it's the tears of the abandoned wives. The anguish of the women and their tears was evidence that these men were hard-hearted. And so God was not pleased with their hypocritical acts of worship. It's as if he couldn't hear their prayers over the sound of their treachery. It's very similar to what we find in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse seven. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So there is a tight link between faithfulness to our spouses, our covenants that we've entered into, and our relationship with God. Verse 14 states clearly that marriage is a covenant relationship with a companion. A companion is a fellow partner, someone you're entering into communion with. And God himself acted as witness between those two parties when they agreed to enter into that covenant relationship. So God was the witness. He is the one who heard the oath. He is the one who heard the vows. And yet now the husband has broken that vow. He's been faithless, he's been treacherous. And remember, what we learned earlier, to witness a covenant isn't simply to observe the covenant, it's to give approval to the covenant and to hold both parties accountable when they break it. Marriage is meant to be understood as a covenant and not just a contract now i recognize that there is some overlap between these two concepts it's why it sometimes gets confusing there are of course obviously obligations that come with marriage Uh, we find in various places in the old testament and the new that a husband and wife are obligated to give each other exclusive conjugal love they're supposed to care for each other emotionally and physically and of course there are some obligations that are distinct unique to the husband unique to the wife we read about that as we laid it out in Ephesians 5, and 33, which is our call to worship text. What we find there under the new covenant is that wives are to find in the relationship between Christ and his church a model for wise, wholehearted, confident, respectful submission. Likewise, husbands find in Christ's relationship to the church a model for sacrificial, strong responsible nourishing love but if we approach marriage with the legalistic expectations of a contract hoping to have all of our hopes and our dreams and our desires fulfilled and met by that spouse we are constructing a miserable marriage looking for opportunities to condemn your spouse where he or she has fallen short You haven't lived up to the bargain that we made. That might make you feel better, but it is the farthest thing from actually living out the vows that you made at your wedding. A covenant is relational. A contract is transactional. I need to get what I was offered. I need to get what I'm owed. Loyalty has no place in a contract, but it is everything in a covenant. So when sin rears its ugly head in a marriage, as it absolutely will, our faithfulness to God and to our spouse constrains us to view that as an opportunity for repentance and forgiveness and for redeeming and reconciling grace. Let's bring some more of Scripture's testimony in here to, to get a fuller picture. This isn't a prohibition against all divorces. That's not what the prophet is addressing. He is uniquely, distinctly speaking of particular circumstances. We know from reading Scripture elsewhere, because of the hardness of heart, divorce is sometimes permitted. It is always tragic, and it's never required, but there are instances in which divorce is permitted and not sinful. Uh, Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 through 11 grants a servant wife permission to divorce her husband if he fails to provide food, clothing, or conjugal love. It's those concepts of physical and emotional care that the husband owes to the wife. And of course, Jesus in Matthew 5 and also Matthew 19 says that divorce is allowed on the ground of sexual immorality. Paul, also speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, says that if an unbelieving partner separates, which is to say divorces, abandons a brother or a sister, then he or she is free from that covenant bond. Now, here is what unites all of these instances together, I believe. Each of those instances reflect treachery to the covenant of marriage. So, breaking the covenant by withdrawing loyal love with no effort or prospect of reconciliation. So we might say that someone who has an ongoing pattern of systematically abusing his or her spouse without remorse, without repentance, is being treacherous to the spouse of his or her youth. It is a severe violation of the covenant entered into. Verse 16 says, a man who puts away his spouse through divorce by breaking the covenant, acting treacherously, covers his garment with violence. Covering a garment, a Hebrew idiom, it's a metaphorical way of saying that that is what he is represented as. When you look at this person, that is what you see. And so someone whose word is going to be very difficult to trust again in the future, his garment is covered with violence. And we can safely say this, this is true, would be similar about a woman, a wife who did the same this whole conversation requires so much wisdom and caution it's fairly easy to see where a contract has been broken we can walk through the negotiation and see how it broke down and see if we're living up it is much more difficult to discern when a covenant has been broken because it's really about the quality of intimacy and relational faithfulness that was agreed upon if you have questions about this come speak to an elder in person email, phone. Those who willfully destroy a marriage through divorce have a very strong warning from God himself. Before a Christian ever divorces, he or she should do everything in his or her power to remain faithful to the covenant. Remember that your marriage wasn't just an agreement that you entered into with your wife. It's also with God. You spoke your vows to love your spouse till death do you part in the presence of God and I presume in the presence of many other witnesses. Remember your oath. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Read through the lens of our call text, Ephesians 5. Divorce gives a bad picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Divorce would portray a picture of Christ abandoning his church, which he never does, or of the church leaving Christ, which is something we must never do. The application from this passage is very clear. Verse 16, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless or treacherous. We should be known as a people who keep our oaths, Uh, our oaths to one another, our oaths to God. And one unique committed relationship which is given to us in order to exercise that fidelity in is marriage. So brothers and sisters, let's guard ourselves in our spirits so that we don't slip into treacherous covenant faithlessness. You know, I mentioned earlier that God entered into a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And as I discussed, normally both the parties who enter into that covenant are walking through those pieces of the animals. Whoever messes up here, let this happen to them. But in Genesis 15, God passed through the pieces alone. Abraham was put to sleep over here on the side. And so Abraham might have been wondering, how am I ever going to trust God to be faithful to his oath that he's making with me? And God responded by assuming the full risk of the covenant. He's the one who walked through the slaughtered animals as a sign of his faithfulness to Abram. In other words, God is saying, if I don't fulfill my promises to you, then let what happened to these animals happen to my holiness and my perfection. May that be chopped up like these animals. And that simply can never happen. God does not change. His word is always good. Abraham wasn't perfectly faithful to his oath. Neither with Israel. Neither are you or I, let's be honest. We deserve to be cut up like those animals for our treachery against God, don't we? I mean, here's the gospel, friends. In Christ, God Himself took on the curse of our unfaithfulness. He was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquity. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds, we are healed. Ah. Jesus Christ, the God man, upholds our end of the covenant. He paid the price of our redemption. And his covenant fidelity becomes ours by the instrument of faith. So you might be crushed this morning, uh, a burden of guilt, a burden of shame uh, from your failures in marriage. Don't leave here this morning with a burden without hearing this invitation to lay it down at the feet of Christ. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. God cannot deny himself, he never changes, he never fails. And so the invitation remains for us all to come to Jesus Christ and find rest for your souls. Even the greatest marriage is simply a shadow of the relationship that is perfect between Christ and his church. So whatever you're facing, uh, hold on. Your greatest hope is not in the faithfulness of your spouse. It is not even in your own faithfulness, but in Christ the faithful bridegroom. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His new creation by water in the word. From heaven He came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood he bought her, and for her life, he died. Let's pray.